Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts 27. You're going to be looking at the first 38 verses of Acts 27. And um, I've, I, I think, aptly titled the sermon, The Last Mile is the Longest. Uh, not so much, hopefully, for our experience through Acts, but certainly this would apply to Paul's experience on his way to Rome, as we'll see shortly. Um, the uh, keywords for our worshipers in training, I think, are see, promise, and body. And uh, so we're in Acts 27, the last mile is the longest. For the past several weeks, we have been considering Luke's accounting of Paul's legal trials that began with his arrest in Jerusalem back in Acts 21. You recall he was nearly beaten to death just outside of the temple by a ravenous mob who had been uh, led astray by lies that some had been spreading about Paul. He was then arrested by the Roman tribune Claudius uh, Lysias, and, um, and yet he was then eventually brought into protective custody it was like an imprisonment, protective custody thing to keep him from being torn to death by, uh, by the Jews. Um, and then he was sent by Lysias to the Roman governor, Felix, asking Felix to decide the case. Paul appears before Felix, and then Felix's, Felix's successor, Festus, and then uh, the Jewish king, Agrippa, over the course of about two years. Um, none of them could find Paul guilty of anything worthy of death. And yet none of them were particularly interested in making sure that justice was upheld either. And so uh, Paul, because of political expediency, uh, he was left in prison and eventually appealed to Caesar. And it was this appeal to Caesar that, in a manner of speaking, had sealed his fate. And we saw last week, after giving his defense to Agrippa, it was decided once and for all, yes, Paul was to go to Rome. And of course, this is exactly what Paul wanted. We saw all the way back in Acts 19 that Paul had made it his endeavor and his ambition to get to Jerusalem and then after that to get on to Rome. And so today we find Paul sailing for Italy under Roman lock and key. And while his legal troubles are for the moment stayed, he finds himself facing a problem of a different kind out on the open sea. There's a great storm that he encounters, a fitting sermon perhaps for this rainy day. But I'll be honest, if you're not a nautical expert, Acts 27 is a lot. It's fascinating. Who doesn't love a a good sailing or shipwreck story? But Acts 27 is a lot. It's, there's a lot of ancient Near Eastern maritime geography. There's a lot of nautical terminology. And it can feel easy to sort of get lost in the midst of all of it. So we will try to navigate those things wisely and safely. But Acts 27 does serve a very important purpose in the accounting of God's sovereignty in the life of his missionary, in the life of his man, Paul, as he was bringing him to Rome, the the center of the known world at the time. It was no small thing for Paul to get there. And so, it's important that we understand from Acts 27, God's work to bring him there. 
But I will commend to you once more uh, a, a good map of the area. Many of you can find them in the backs of your Bibles. For me, it's the very last page of mine. will show you the squiggle lines of Paul's uh, sailing to Rome. And so if, if you are in any way a, a, min, a visual thinker, it can be helpful uh, to, to have a picture in your mind of where these places are that Luke is going to mention for us this morning. And so uh, either keep a thumb there or just listen well or go look at it later. Um, but it is helpful. So I want to read these verses. We're going to read uh, through 38. Um, and then uh, we'll give a, a very simple outline and hop to it. Luke writes, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of, um, I practiced this one, of uh, Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coasts of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, and not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to the sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that we would run aground on the Sirtis, they um, lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. 
Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must, we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So there are just two parts to this sermon this morning. Uh, first, we're going to discuss all 38 verses, give uh, some just a summary explanation and overview of, of what's happening in this whole passage, trying to make sure we understand what's going on. And then secondly, we're just going to draw out several lessons that we should learn from this passage. So first then, uh, in all 38 verses, um, working through them uh, fairly chronologically here, what's going on? Um, Luke tells us that Paul and company, namely Luke, Aristarchus, and then there were some other uh, prisoners with soldiers and sailors. They left for Italy. They were under the charge, at least um, in some manner speaking, of this man Julius, a centurion. And the ship was from this place, Adramidium. It was a city in Asia, just south of Troas. And the ship was likely returning home and was simply planning to sail along the coast of Asia to its home port. And then at some point, uh, the centurion, Julius, knew that they would have to hop ship onto another one headed for Italy. And so they leave, um, we can assume, from Caesarea, and they sailed up to Sidon, where Paul, we're told, is treated kindly by the centurion. He's allowed to be refreshed with his friends. Um, and they leave from Sidon, sailing under the lee of Cyprus, which I saw a couple of different things. If you don't know what that means, I, I, my understanding is that it means to sail on the opposite side of an island from which the counterwinds are coming. So it's a way of sailing uh, against the winds and, uh, and the island using the island to block them. And so they're sailing under the lee of Cyprus so they can continue to go because uh, in those days they didn't have 
you know, motors or anything like that. They had to uh, really rely on, on the wind in, in many respects. And so they keep sailing, uh, make it over to, to Myra and Lycia, and uh, they change ships there, we're told, in verse um, 6. The ship now from Alexandria, which was bound for Italy. On a, a, they were likely delivering corn there. Well, this new ship, Luke tells us that they, sold, they sailed with much difficulty. They, they landed on Crete in a place called Fair Havens near uh, Lycia. And all of this, this description up to this point in the first eight verses, really sets us up for what he does in verse 9. Luke tells us that despite their best intentions and efforts, they were way behind schedule at this point. Um, sailing for, for them was, was limited to a certain point of the year. It was, they could sail for most of the year. The vast majority of the year was open for sailing. But during the late fall and the winter months, the seas were considered too dangerous to attempt a long open sea voyage like this one. And so at this point in the story, too much time has elapsed since setting sail from Caesarea. And the, the voyage was now deemed to be quite dangerous. He mentions the fast, that is the Day of Atonement. It was likely held on October 5th of this year. Probably this is A.D. 59. We're thinking the Day of Atonement would have been held on October 5th that year. So now at some point on Crete, as they're trying to figure out what to do, they are into the middle of October, perhaps even its end, and uh, November would have been the absolute cutoff point for setting sail. So they're not quite there yet, but they do know they're not going to make it to Italy. But should they try to venture on any further? Paul advised that they should wait it out. Uh, but the others, the centurion, the ship's owners, the, the ship's owner, the captain, the rest of the crew, they thought otherwise. Now, it might seem strange to us in reading this account that Paul might even think to weigh in here. Paul's a prisoner. Paul's not the captain of the ship or any such thing. But Paul, if you think about it, was no sailing novice at this point in his life. It's been calculated that he had sailed some 3,500 miles before even leaving for Rome on his various missionary journeys. And so he presents them with uh, a thought of wisdom. He's perceiving that it's a great likelihood that they are going to face much danger if they sail on. And so they're faced with a difficult decision. Um, I think it might be easy, because of what happens for us, to, to read the account and think these people were insane. Why wouldn't they have just listened to Paul? Uh, and he does say they should have listened to him, but it's a difficult decision. Luke himself tells us uh, in, in that paragraph there that uh, the winter made uh, fair havens in insuitable and unsuitable harbor. In verse 12, the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in. So the decision must be made. Do we face down the open sea with the increasing possibility of hostile weather, possibly lose cargo, lose the ship, and maybe even lose our lives? Or do we face an, uh, a delay, an a extended delay here? Definitely won't make it. Won't be able to sail again until probably uh, perhaps February or at least March. Or at least, at least February, probably March. And, um, 
and probably lose the ship in this harbor. He doesn't say what was inhospitable about it, but uh, we know that it wasn't um, was likely going to be a battered ship by the time this winter was over. And so, sadly, democracy prevails, and a plan is formed to sail a little further along the coast of Crete. They want to reach uh, the port of Phoenix on its western shore, a better harbor and a little closer to Italy. So they set out, hugging the shoreline with a gentle wind blowing from the south, assuming that they would be able to make land if things turned for the worse. Well, things did, and they weren't. Luke tells us that the northeaster, a tempestuous wind, struck down from the land and came upon them, driving them along opposite their direction. And then in verses 15 through 20, Luke describes several increasingly desperate attempt maneuvers that the crew was making in order to try to survive this storm. And the conclusion of it all in verse 20 is that after many days of darkness uh, from this no small tempest, they had simply lost hope. They lost sense of direction. They lost sense of location. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know where they were going. They could see neither sun nor moon nor stars, and so all hope of being saved was lost. And they were ready to toss in the towel. But then, in the midst of this starving, defeated, and forlorn forlorn group of soldiers, um, sailors, and prisoners, steps forward God's mighty man, Paul, ever eager to encourage, ever eager to lead uh, faithfully, he reminds the crew that he had been right. They should have listened to him. But I think we would be hasty and presumptuous to assume that Paul is rubbing it in their faces here. I don't think the point is simply to make them feel bad about not listening to them previously. The point is to draw their attention to the fact that he had been right. And that was important because he had something important to communicate to them now. He had offered them a word of wisdom and caution before, but now he ups the ante. He says, the previous night, God had sent him an angel to remind him, Paul, you're going to Caesar. Now that would be comforting for Paul, but what about the rest on the ship? Well, it appears that Paul had been praying for his fellow shipmates. A prayer that God happily answers. It's the best way to make sense of this phrase. God has granted you all who sail with you. Paul certainly was a man of prayer, would have been praying for his own life and the lives of others. And so God grants this prayer. He heartens Paul with these words, and now Paul seeks to hearten others. He says, take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. So it's a good news, bad news situation. He says, there will be no loss of life among you. The ship, however, it's a goner. So Luke tells us that after this uh, discussion, this, encourage, this word of encouragement from Paul, which is, happens about two weeks after their costly miscalculation and ill-advised departure from Crete, uh, sail, the sailors begin to suspect that they were nearing the land. So they take a couple of soundings. They determine that the water is becoming more shallow, and so they drop some anchors from the back the boat, praying for daylight. But some didn't want to wait. 
Some attempted to leave the ship early. They pretended that they were simply going to lower the anchors from up front. But Paul informs them that everyone has to stay in the ship. All hands would be needed for any of them to be saved. So the soldiers, Paul now having their full attention, they cut the cords from the boat and keep everyone on board. So finally, as day was dawning, Paul encouraged them to eat. Some had perhaps been unwilling to eat or maybe just unable to eat because of this tumultuous 14 days of sailing. But he reminds them, hey, you're not going to die, but you do need your strength. So he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he ate. And this act encouraged them, and they ate. And then once all on board had eaten, they, they, lighted, they lightened the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea, waiting for land, which they knew was near. So what do we do? What do we do with this, this lengthy passage, this sort of long description of this, this, this sailing endeavor, this shipwreck? Um, we haven't even really gotten to the shipwreck yet. What do we do with it? What do we do with these verses? Well, four lessons that I want to offer to you this morning that this text teaches us regarding the path of obedience. Because that's what Paul is in. Paul has been called by Christ to take his message to Jerusalem and then to take it to Rome. And so that is what Paul has done ever since Acts 19. He has been walking in the path of obedience. And the first thing that we need to recognize regarding the path of obedience is that we will often face difficulty in said path. God has made it emphatically clear to Paul that Paul is to testify, testify for Christ in Rome. And yet, that does not mean that Paul will reach his destination easily. At least three times we have seen God make it clear to Paul that he was going to Rome. Through the Spirit, he does this in Acts 20, 22. The Lord Jesus does this himself in Acts 23, 11, and then now through an angel in 27, 23. So Paul knew all along the way that he was in the right way. He knew that he was doing exactly what God had called him to do. And yet, as his friends had told him in Acts 21, and he affirmed that he knew himself, as he was heading for, to Jerusalem, he expected to suffer along the way. He expected to suffer when he arrived in Jerusalem. Having gotten beaten and arrested in Jerusalem, I doubt that he expected much less on his way to Rome. He expected suffering, and sure enough, suffering came. It came all along in the form of persecution from his fellow countrymen. It came in the form of unjust hearings from governing, governing authorities. It came in the form of miscalculated travel plans by impatient sailors. It came in the form of ad adversarial weather conditions for a from a hostile sea. In other words, Paul's journey deeper into the will of God, if you will, it involved false accusations, a mob beating, and multiple mistrials. And now, through no fault of his own, in fact, despite the sound wisdom and counsel that he offered, the ship on which he sailed was doomed to run aground on a strange, unknown island. So brothers and sisters, do you have 
an unhealthy expectation that things are supposed to go the way you think they're supposed to go? Do you have an unhealthy expectation that things are supposed to be easy for you? Do we find trials and stressors in our lives to be utterly shocking? Are you upended each time that things don't go according to your plans? If so, may Luke's accounting of Paul's ministry be instructive for you. Because it turns out that suffering in the Christian life is not a bug, but it is a feature. Yes, Paul was uniquely called to an especial, a special heightened form of suffering. In, in Acts 9.16, the Lord Jesus says as much about him. But we should not be surprised when suffering comes knocking on our doors. We shouldn't ask for suffering, but we can receive it with glad hearts. When we are walking faithfully with the Lord. Because we know that God has so ordered the world that the suffering we experience actually works for our good and for the advancement of His kingdom. This is even something to note as we'll see when we consider the shipwreck and how they end up on this island of Malta and the good that results from that. So we don't want to despair. First thing, suffering is coming. Hardship is coming. But don't despair, brothers and sisters. When the road is hard, you are in good company. A second lesson regards the sovereignty of God and our responsibility in the path of obedience. Remember, the Lord had promised Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. And Paul trusted God. He trusted that God would providentially bring him there. And yet, he also sought to live responsibly with the information that he had in any given moment. Paul knew that he would make it to Rome. So why didn't he just sit back and say, well, I don't know about the rest of these fools, but I know I'm making it to Rome. I'm not too worried about them. Or even... About himself, I know I'm going, so who cares if we set sail early? Or who cares if half the crew abandon the ship? Who cares if nobody eats? But no, Paul told the crew, he said, it's too dangerous to sail on. He told them that while God had promised him the night before that none of them would die, he says, we got to act wisely here, be responsible, don't abandon ship. If the sailors had abandoned ship, they would have surely perished in the darkness near the shore of an unknown land. At least the rest of the souls on board would have been left without the help needed to make it safely to land in any manner of speaking. And again, as I mentioned, at the end he tells them, look, you're not going to die, but you've got to eat. God isn't limited by us. His sovereign rule is not dependent upon my responsible living, but God commands against foolishness and disobedience. He calls us to wisdom and faith as we seek to obey His Word. Responsibility, in other words, is not the cause 
of of receiving the fulfillment of whatever God has promised, but it is by His design the usual context of receiving what He has promised. And so we don't want to askew and cast off responsibility because of the sovereignty of God. It is through responsibility that God so often works. So the question for us is, am I tempted one way or the other? Am I tempted to cast off responsibility because I believe God has got this? Or am I tempted to cast off the sovereignty of God and assume I must do everything? It was from his belief that God would deliver him that Paul was heartened to command faithful, wise living. So we need both. A third lesson regards the place that others should have in our lives as we progress upward on the path of obedience. God had promised Paul that he would make it to to Rome, but he was not only and ever about himself. He wanted to save the lives of his fellow travelers, and he warned them of the danger. As I said earlier, he apparently, from what Luke has written, prayed for them, and God granted this request. And so he exhorts them that they would need all hands on deck to be ready for this running aground that they had to do. Luke even recounts the number of people that were on the ship. They weren't alone. You know, darkness and danger can lead to individualistic and selfish thinking. When I am in trial and tribulation and when things are difficult, I can forget I'm not alone. But we're called to stick together. A final lesson that we need to see could be summed up in three words. And I love these three words. Down with Gnosticism. Notice the body and soul ministry in which Paul engages on this ship. He speaks truth to them and then he tells them to take heart. So he speaks truth, telling them to take heart, and then he feeds them. Paul loved in word and in deed. John Stott writes this about Paul here. He says, We see aspects of Paul's character which endear him to us as an integrated Christian who combines spirituality with sanity and faith with works. He was a man of God and of action, a man of the Spirit and of common sense. In other words, as we said, Paul loved in word and deed with both hands. He didn't tie one hand behind his back. You know, I think it can sound really spiritual and God-honoring to say to someone or to say to yourself, you shouldn't be so depressed right now. Don't be sad or angry or bitter or afraid. God's Word and God's Spirit are enough. That sounds super spiritual, but I think it depends on what you mean by enough. Can I justify sinning because I'm hungry? No. Of course not. Paul tells us, the outer man wastes away, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. But the Bible never acts as though there is a radical disconnect between body and soul. 
The Bible never acts as though we shouldn't be committed to a whole-bodied obedience. In fact, it does just the opposite of that. Think about 1 Kings 19. Elijah is on the run from wicked Jezebel. He's discouraged. He's uh, wounded and weary. And the Lord comes and ministers to him, body and soul. He provides him food and drink and tells him to rest. He does this a couple of times. And then he encourages him with the news. He says, Elijah, brother, you are not alone. And so it is with Paul. We see it here. He tells his sailing companions, look, you guys aren't going to die. He hits them with the truth. And he says, but you need to eat. You need your strength. Think about the Lord Jesus. When he preaches to the multitudes. And then what? He perceived that they were hungry. And so he fed them. He gave instructions to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And he fed them. So the Lord does with us, and so should we do with one another. Let's not be Gnostic in our thinking. If that's a term you're not familiar with, it's an old heresy that uh, cast off the, the body, said the body was irrelevant or even bad, and all we need is the super spiritual, super secret knowledge. So we don't want to assume, like the Gnostics, that the spirit good, body bad. So if you are struggling spiritually, here are some things to do. Get a good night's sleep. Eat. Eat well. Eat appropriately. Don't overeat. Don't undereat. Stay hydrated. Spend time with other people. Read your Bible. Pray and repeat. Those are not things necessarily that have to be done in that precise order. And even if you do them, it's not necessarily going to immediately change the world. But to be a bit cheesy, it could very well change yours. Don't, oh, don't underestimate what a good night's sleep can do for your spirit. What a well-timed meal can do for your, your mind. So in the path of obedience... We must demand of ourselves full-hearted, whole-bodied trust in God. We must refuse to expect to be transported to heaven on flowery beds of ease. We must trust God to carry out His good purposes in us as we seek to live wisely before Him. We must embrace others as gifts that God has given to us. And we must forsake the Lone Ranger mentality. And we must completely reject any kind of Gnostic thinking that pits body against spirit and spirit against body, seeking to be more spiritual than even God himself. So that's Acts 27 for us, or the first bit of it. Paul has been guided and led providentially by the Lord throughout all of this. The Lord has not abandoned him. He is bringing him to Rome. And brothers and sisters, whatever you are facing, the Lord is with you too. The Lord Jesus promises to his church, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we will pick up next week with, or not next week, 
in two weeks with uh, the actual shipwreck and landing on Malta.